This is Exchanges Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. We're in our London studio today as part of a deep dive into emerging economic and market themes around Europe. Today, we'll be talking European equities with Sharon Bell, Senior European Equity Strategist at Goldman Sachs Investment Research. Sharon, welcome to the program. Welcome. Let's start by just setting the stage. How have European equities performed in recent months and what's the outlook? Well, I have to say they haven't performed super well. They're roughly flat this year. So if you're an investor, that's not a brilliant return. But they haven't been dreadful either. So if I compare them globally, then European equities are flat. US is up about 5%, so certainly has outperformed. Whereas if you've been investing in emerging markets, they're down 5 or 6%, and they have been much more volatile as well. So if you'd have been investing in Europe for diversification purposes, it wouldn't have been too much of a disaster. But I wouldn't say they performed very well, no. In your research, you take a forensic look at factors, value, momentum, growth. How are the various factors performed in Europe at the moment and why? The things that have done really well this year have either been growth companies, companies with a particular innovative or they happen to be in a growth area, growth market, or companies with very strong balance sheets. Basically, companies that offer investors not just a valuation, not just cheap, companies that have got a particular growth remit. For example, our basket of companies which are investing extra in CapEx and R&D and have good returns, cash returns on that, has done extremely well this year. It doesn't do well every single year, but it's done well this year. So people have been looking for that rather than value companies. Value companies would be companies that are just cheap and could do well because you're buying them at a very, very cheap and expensive price. And I think there are reasons for that. I mean, one is that there hasn't been a super amount of economic growth in Europe. That's been decelerating a bit this year. 2%ish. 2%ish. That's not too bad. I mean, for Europe, that's not too bad, but it hasn't been accelerating. So I think that's one of the reasons. I think another reason is bond yields are very, very low. And when bond yields are low and stay low, particularly in Europe, that tells you something about low nominal long-term growth, which I think people are concerned about. Again, steers people more towards companies that have got structural growth stories behind them. So you can kind of buck the trend of this low nominal growth environment. Also, the low bond yields means the discount rate is very low. That's very important for a company that's growing because most of your cash you're going to get from that company is way into the future. So you want your discount rate to be very low to favour those stocks. And then I think finally, some of the big value sectors like telecoms and banks have had big structural problems this year. And that's another reason they've underperformed. Obviously, you can't talk about politics in Europe without talking about Brexit. Brexit in the headlines will be in the headlines for the foreseeable future. There's a big meeting in September and a lot of talk before that. How are investors responding to the headlines coming out of Brussels and out of Westminster? Well, I mean, there's headlines all the time, isn't there? Every week, I mean, every day almost. Do investors just push it aside and wait for real progress or some sort of roadmap? I think there is an expectation that there will be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of headlines kind of zigzagging all the time over the next few months. That's certainly what we've experienced recently. Now, you could say this should have been very negative for UK assets to have all these headlines, a lot of uncertainty. But if you look at big indices like the FTSE 100, which is the big blue chip index in Europe, it's been flat like the rest of Europe year to date. It hasn't really underperformed. And I think the reason for that is most of the companies in the index are very international in their exposure. So to the extent that any uncertainty pushes down sterling, 
this is great for big international companies that make most of their money in dollars Overseas, in yeah. the US, mm. in emerging markets, etc. And also, you've got big oil companies in there, mining companies in there. They're not really dependent on domestic UK growth and environment for their profitability. But More of a global macro play. It's yeah. a global macro play, really. But there will be a little bit of uncertainty in a discount in the FTSE 100. It used to trade on a premium to the rest of Europe, and now it trades on a slight discount. It's not as if none of the uncertainty is in there. But I think it's more likely to be displayed in the bit of the UK market, which is purely domestic, UK domestic companies. A couple of years ago, when we had the referendum, they shot down from being on quite a high PE multiple to actually being on quite a big discount to the rest of Europe. And that stuck, that discount. And I think there are good reasons for that. And all this uncertainty means that they'll probably stay on that type of discount. And the UK is projected to grow a little bit more slowly than the rest of Europe. Yeah, but one and a half this year and next year, as opposed to more like two, as you were saying before, for Europe. So a little bit weaker than the rest of Europe. And prior to the referendum, it was growing more strongly than the rest of Europe. It was probably going to slow down anyway. It was further through its cycle than the euro area. But that's quite weak growth for the UK in the context of where global growth is at the moment. So I think you're seeing it in UK domestic growth. I think you're seeing it in the valuation of domestic UK companies. But the FTSE 100 is not a very good proxy for that. There were elections in Italy, elections in Germany, long periods afterwards in which governments were formed or not formed. How have those different events affected investor sentiment and positioning? And if I look at what US investors have done in terms of their flows into Europe this year, they were pretty happy with Europe at the beginning of the year. But then you're right, you had the Italian elections. Now, at first, global investors were not too worried. There was no decision out of the Italian election. It was very much what we would call in the UK a hung parliament situation, which is not unusual in Italy. So I think there was going to be a lot of wrangling going on for the next few months. And yes, it was a concern, but not a huge one. And then in May, you saw the forming of a coalition which was quite populist, the Five Star Movement and La Liga coming together. And that did worry the market for two reasons. One is that some of the politicians in those parties have previously expressed anti-Euro sentiment. And then secondly, they come to power really with a mandate to expand fiscal policy. And both of those things are a little bit of a concern to the market because it's something that's very much at odds with what Germany is looking for, which is fiscal prudence, and something at odds with what the ECB is looking for too. So it creates that uncertainty. There's a budget in the end of September in Italy, and I think that again is a quite a risky juncture for Italian assets. But you're right, it's not just Italy. There's politics across the whole of Europe, which is very uncertain. There's been a rise in populist parties. And even though in some cases they haven't got in, as in Germany's case, you may still see the traditional parties in power. They really do change and influence the balance of power. And these parties, they may want to reduce migration. They may want to be less pro-Europe. They may have separatist sentiments. Lots of things which basically increase risks for investors in Europe. They're not necessarily negative, but they increase the risk and uncertainty. One country we haven't spent much time on is France. You have a new, not so new, but newish, pro-business, pro-growth government there. Has that changed investor sentiment around the French market and French companies? It has been quite positive, actually. We saw US investors in particular get quite keen on Europe when it became clear that Macron was going to win in France from May 2017. You saw quite sharp inflows into Europe. You know, a lot of the sort of reforms that Macron talked about and has promised, he's making progress on that. So that has been good. French economic growth has also been reasonably good, along with the rest of Europe. I don't think it's transforming Europe in totality. And I think that that has been a little bit disappointing. Perhaps not Macron's fault. He himself cannot transform Europe. 
But I think was expectations that maybe with him in the helm, you would see less of this movement towards populist parties. But actually, that's still the case. And then in terms of France, the big French index, the CAC 40, has been one of the best performers this year. I think a lot of that's to do with the number of growth companies that are in there. We talked about this as well, that the growth companies so far have performed well, the luxury goods companies, for example, that are in the index. But I'm sure the fact that you've got a pro-growth, pro-business government is also a big help too. Obviously, a lot of talk around trade tensions, particularly between the U.S. and Europe, the U.S. and China. It was a reasonably productive meeting last month in Washington, but not a lot of real policy coming out of it. How has all the talk of heightened trade tensions and tariffs affected investor sentiment? It's been a negative in terms of investor sentiment, for sure. I mean, there's a general view that sort of lower tariffs and less protectionism is a positive for global trade and keeps prices and inflation lower and boosts global growth. In terms of where Europe sits, it probably sits in between on all of this, in the sense that it's not as negative as people perceive the risks to be for emerging markets in China. I mean, that's what we find as well. If we look at the correlation between performance of different indices across the world and world trade growth, then the most sensitive index is MSCI EM. So you'd be looking at emerging markets or Asia X Japan. Whereas within the context of Europe, the DAX, the German markets, the most sensitive. It's not as sensitive as Asia, not as sensitive emerging markets, but the DAX, the German market, is the most exposed. It's got the big auto companies. Because of auto companies, yeah. Not just auto companies, but chemical, big engineers. Exporters. Yeah, Yeah, big exporters. Its economy is perceived to be and is quite export driven. It's got a trade surplus with the US and with the rest of Europe. So in that sense, I think it's the most sensitive of the market. We also find the Swedish market, the OMX, to be quite sensitive too. If you want one which is very defensive against world trade, then you'd want to go for the Swiss market, which tends to be much less dependent upon that. But you know, having said that, as you say, there have been constructive meetings more recently, and we're not expecting a big escalation of protectionism, particularly between Europe and the US. So we don't see it as a huge negative factor. Now, we have listened to the various second quarter calls by companies on their earnings releases to see how much they said it's affecting them. Many of the companies talked about having some agility in terms of where they can produce things, very Mm -hmm. sensible, so they can move things around. Some companies talked about having slightly higher input costs and that being a concern to them, whether it's steel or other input costs. Some companies talked about their consumers being affected. Even if it doesn't affect them directly, it may mean that consumers are facing higher costs for certain things, and that may mean less demand for their products. But vast majority of European companies said there was no impact. So that reassures us too. As the euro bounces around a little bit, how would investors think about euro volatility in regards to equity performance? Generally speaking, a fall in the euro ought to be good for European companies. And the euro has fallen against the dollar so far this year. Not a huge move, but it has fallen. About a fifth of company earnings and sales are to the US. So you make those dollar earnings, they're worth more when you translate them back if the dollar has been strong. I think generally that little bit of weakness in the euro is helpful, makes Europe a bit more competitive. When you make overseas earnings, that's good. Obviously, if that euro weakness is because of a big sovereign problem in Europe or some concern about growth, then that's less positive quite clearly. But I don't think it is this time. Is it essentially the divergence in monetary policy now? I think it's a little bit of that. Also, it's been dollar strength rather than euro weakness. The dollar's been strong globally. And actually, if you look at the euro against all its trading partners in trade-weighted terms, it's actually risen a bit this year. So I'm not expecting a big impact from a very weak euro on European earnings boosting them this year, because I don't think the euro has been that weak. But it won't be a detriment to earnings this year. So in the US equity market, there's a lot of talk and a lot of action on buybacks. Obviously, the tax reform package that 
past last year, freed up a lot of corporate cash, and buybacks have been a dominant theme in the market, less so here in Europe. How do you talk to investors about that divergence in corporate approach? Uh, I know. It's been absolutely huge. Buybacks have been one of the chief drivers, you could say, of the US market. Not the sole one, but certainly been a key one. And this year, we reckon buybacks will be over $600 billion. This is a huge amount that US companies are buying back. And as you say, some of the changes on the tax front, et cetera, have been a boost. Buybacks, in fact, and the corporate sector buying shares is the biggest buyer of the US equity market. And Europe doesn't have that buyer, as you've just said. So um, buybacks in Europe this year are likely to probably be around $50 billion. So a tiny Probably less portion. than one company in uh, one, or two one or two companies, two companies yeah. in the US. No, completely. It's tiny in Europe. It is growing a little bit. We have heard some announcements in the last few months. Now, why there's such a big difference? There's always been a big gap. It's not just specific to this year or last year. There's always been a huge gap with US companies doing far more buybacks than European companies. Some of it is... I don't know whether you describe it as cultural or just a different policy. So European companies pay more dividends. So the dividend yield, if you invest on the European index, is about just under 4%, whereas in the US, it's just around 2%. So you get more dividends if you invest in a European company. And if you invest in a US company, you get more buybacks. And that may just be preference of investors or preference of the shareholders or the company management. Also, I think there's a kind of different incentive set, because if you look at S&P 500 companies, almost 80% of them have their CEO directly remunerated via shareholder returns. That's what he's really focused on. She's really focused on. That's what they really want. And I don't think that's just the CEO. That's the data we can get. I'm sure that's the whole board and many of the management and stock options are very popular, etc. So really focus on that. Whereas in Europe, very few CEOs are focused just on shareholder returns. It's a more broad focus. And I think that that means you get fewer share buybacks. So I think some of it's cultural. Some of it is how you want to give your money back to shareholders. But I do think it's a bit cyclical too. You've got to remember that Europe is, hasn't been as strong in recent years. There's a lot of uncertainty, as we've just discussed politically. It's no surprise that European companies want to keep a bit more of a cash buffer. They don't want to spend that money in the way that US companies do because they're not feeling as confident. They're not as far through their cycle. And I therefore do think that that cyclical element will mean that share buybacks in Europe can grow in the next couple of years, but they're not going to reach the levels in the US. Two other American, originally American phenomenon, activism and private equity seem to have picked up a bit in Europe in recent years. What accounts for that? I think it was inevitable. So it's a bit like the share buybacks thing. I think that will grow in Europe too. It'll just take a little while. There's a few things. I mean, one is that there is rich pickings and opportunity in Europe. You've got lots of conglomerate structures. You can shake up management in Europe. You've seen a big rise in spin-offs, for example. Sometimes it's an activist shareholder coming in and encouraging that. Sometimes it's even the threat of activist shareholders coming in. Companies will reorganize their businesses. So I think that there's perhaps more opportunity for activist shareholders to come into Europe and do that. Has there been pushback on the policy side or on the political side around activism? Activism is generally treated quite positively, provided it's not hugely negative from an employment perspective. Then I think improving returns for companies is generally seen as a positive thing. Economies are growing globally at the moment. There's also a little bit of a change in the asset management industry as well, because you've had the rise of passive investment, very, very low cost passive investment. So what can active funds and shareholders do? Well, they can be more aggressive. You can get almost a polarisation of the industry where you have very cheap, passive, but actually very active, active, that really gets in there and tries to change companies and produce better returns. How about PE? Are sponsors playing a bigger role in the market today? Private equity, the amount of cash they have, 
is quite large now. So I think that that build-up of cash and their weight will have an influence over the next couple of years, that's for sure. And also low interest rates, being able to get that funding, etc. I think that will make a difference. All these kind of more activist strategies will have an impact. And I think that there are companies in Europe which are ripe for improving, taking private or trying to restructure, etc. Returns in Europe could be a bit better. So we talked a little bit about divergent monetary policy. The ECB is status quo, whereas the Fed is sort of tightening. How is monetary policy affecting equity valuations? And is there a concern that the euro area doesn't have the headroom if things go south? I think that last point is absolutely on the ball. I think there is a concern, particularly by US investors, but global investors. Economies are expanding globally at the moment, but interest rates in Europe are still negative, negative 40 basis points for short-term rates. Whereas the Fed is tightening policy at the moment, has that opportunity to, because growth has been strong for a while and employment is full. In the case of Europe, you're still earlier in your cycle. There's perhaps still a little bit more headroom to grow. We don't expect a near downturn. But I think global investors are worried that when the next one comes, maybe that's 2020, 2021 or beyond, rates in Europe will still be very, very low. And you won't have, as you say, that headroom, that ammunition to cut interest rates and boost the economy. And you also don't have a unified fiscal policy in Europe, so that makes it harder. Yeah, it does. Europe has got a bit more fiscal room. In some ways, by cutting taxes and spending more money in the US now, just as you're at full employment, that creates less fiscal room if there's another Mm -hmm. downturn. Whereas the Fed perhaps will have a little bit of room. Rates will be up at 3 or 3.5%. By the time you see another downturn in Europe, rates may still be a lot lower. But Germany has a surplus. It has some fiscal room. It could spend some money. Other countries, maybe not so much. But I think Germany would be in a position to spend some money if you did see a downturn. But markets will be less convinced. They'll wait until they see that. And then they'll want to see the economic impact of that. Whereas boosting things via cutting rates is a lot shorter, sharper, quicker. Having said that, there are other things that the ECB can do. They can pursue more forward guidance. Draghi's whatever it takes speech in 2012, for example, was an example of that forward guidance having quite a powerful impact. So there are other things they can do. But I do think this is a concern. The other thing to bear in mind, of course, is what should they be doing right now? They can't worry about maybe the next recession in two or three years or more time. They need to be doing the right thing for conditions right now. And I think still you need support for peripheral Europe. And that support is helping. I mean, we've seen for the Italian banks, for example, non-performing loans have been coming down. Interest costs are now capped. They're kept lower in peripheral Europe, and that is allowing them to recover. So there's important reasons for this policy, but it does create risks as well. So barring unforeseen geopolitical events, how do you see the rest of the year playing out in Europe? Assuming you don't get these unforeseen, well, even the foreseen ones, the worried about ones, assuming that they don't get worse, get worse. We get through the Italian budget and it's relatively benign from a market perspective. We don't have a full-scale trade war. We don't have the trade war. And also that the Brexit debate comes up with a resolution, etc. All of that, you would then see positive returns by European equities. Like I said, so far year to date, it's not been dreadful for investors in Europe, but you've only had flat performance. And I think earnings this year are likely to be 9 or 10%. That's not too bad. It's not as impressive as the US and it's not boosted by the tax cuts that the US has had. Europe doesn't benefit from a large tech sector either, so you don't have that structural growth story going on. But 10% growth is not too bad for Europe. Next year, we expect only about 6% earnings growth. But again, it's an environment which isn't too bad for equity investors. The other alternative, if you look at alternative asset classes such as European bonds, yields there are very, very low. So that relative case for equities is there. If you don't see some of these risk events come through, then I think equities will do okay. So Sharon, how long have you been covering European equities? 
I don't know. I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> I should know that. That should be the easiest question, shouldn't it? Uh, I don't know, 20 years or so. Wow. So how did you get interested in markets in the first place? Well, I did economics and economics is great, but... You started with macroeconomics? Yeah, Yeah. macroeconomics. So you think, well, how can I use this in the real world? I liked the kind of fast-paced environment of working at a bank and thinking about how things could affect the companies, sectors, stocks, etc. That was a lot of fun. And of course, all these risk events, we talk about them in a negative sense, but they create opportunity as well. And they Uh, make life exciting. Exactly. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on August 1st, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.